there and welcome to episode 21 of the Hawthorns Debate Club. My name is Jamie Clay and I am joined every week by two gentlemen to have a few conversations and discussions about West Bromwich Albion. So let me start by saying a warm hello to my good friend Alex Collins. Hello. And hello to my little brother Joe Clay. Hello. So we are finally back recording again. It feels like it's been absolutely ages since we last got to fill your minds and souls with some piping hot Albion content. Let me say a mucho's apologies for the podcast void we created last week. Needless to say, we missed you all very much. But the international break came along and we decided to take the opportunity to rest our weary souls. All three of us had kind of hectic things going on with work and life. Uh, so we took the dullness of international football as an opportune moment to take a week off. But before we left you wondering in a debate clubless wasteland, Albion once more decided to drag us all back on the emotional roller coaster. The mauling of the Bluebirds was followed probably by the worst performance of the season so far against Stoke. But before we get there, let me say a huge thank you for downloading and listening to the Hawthorns Debate Club. It's simple. We love you. Um, we want you to tell people that you know this podcast, that you love this podcast, and they should know and love it too. Uh, and let me say, even though we've been off, uh, we've been talking to people behind the scenes, and we've got some super cool things coming up on the podcast in the next few weeks and months, including giveaways and potentially even some guests. So it's exciting times ahead. So on this week's episode, we will discuss the game to forget in Stoke very very briefly because we know it's a long time ago now and you're probably all over it by now but we'll toss around some chunks to do with that game as well as other chunks that are floating around the club from the world of football in general before briefly talking about the Blues game. Right, so let's quickly talk about the Stoke game. So everybody quickly hop in the time machine and we'll blast ourselves all the way back. I think it's fair to say that the Stoke game was perhaps the, the worst performance we've seen from the Albion. Very much like Varys from Game of Thrones. I have little birds that feed me information about different football games. And I had some little birds in the away stand and they told me, and I'm going to redact part of the comments that was made for the benefit of the people listening to the podcast right now. They described the game as expletive all over the park and I think watching the game it very much looked like that as well obviously a lot has been discussed about this game Val and various players have come out in the press and said that obviously Stoke played a really good game and you have to take your hats off to Stoke a lot of was made about fatigue and tiredness especially after the Cardiff performance and the style of play generally just demanding a lot of the players and potentially that contributed to the performance and the result. But this game finished 1-0, but for me, it wasn't even close. And the 1-0 final result was very, very generous scoreline towards Albion. Do you guys have any quick thoughts about this game? I was watching the game where I was watching my son play football on my phone. And I do think it's a bit of a cop-out saying we were a bit tired because Stoke played in the same days as us. But yeah, all I'd say about this game is it's our first defeat. And let's not go too much into the negatives. It was a poor game. You know, we could have got beat three or four. And Stoke were great. And that's why I predicted Stoke to be our first defeat. I just put that in there. I Did predicted you accurately that. Predict oh, well done yeah. on our Mystic Meg section. Yeah, oh, very well so done. But yeah, that's uh, it's our first defeat, so we'll go with that as the positive. So positive prophecies, Alex. How about you? Is it abandoned ship time again? No, far from it. 
Stoke are a bit of our bogey team, aren't they? Third game in a week, you know, we've got six out of nine points. First league defeat of the season, you know, 11 games in. That's tremendous, that is, isn't it? Couldn't have wished for a better start, really. I would have snapped their hand off if they said we're going to only lose once in the first 11 games. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to dwell on it much further, but it was disappointing. But I think fatigue did play a huge part in the game. And I, th- I thought Stoke were really good as well. Yeah, I think that's both fair comments. For me, on the night while I was watching, as these two gents will attest to, I was unhappy to say the least, while watching this game, I was extremely disappointed. I thought that the Cardiff game would lead us into this Swiss Army knife kind of approach that I said that we'd be able to look at the opposition and react accordingly. And that seemed to work really well against Cardiff, but it was back to the same old thing. And there's a few moments while I was watching the game where I thought, what is the plan here? But it is fair to say that this team are record breakers. I know Valishman has already set new records for the start of a season, and you can't ignore that, even though the result was disappointing. Let's jump back in the time machine and come back up to the present day then. Um, so everyone get on board. Choo-choo. All aboard. Perhaps the thing I want to talk about, without necessarily dwelling on the Stoke game in particular, Alex has kindly crunched some numbers in our notes here today, and we are currently 11 games into the season, which is 23.91% of the season. And we're currently sitting pretty, according to Alex and his excellent use of adjectives in second position in the Championship League table. There's been a few days now to calm down since the Stoke game. Obviously, international football pours water on any kind of excitement there is to do with any kind of football. Would you say there are any reasonable concerns after the emotion of the Stoke game that we need to be worried about as Albion fans? Perhaps if I kick us off to get the discussion snowballing. Joe, you've already mentioned it, that the excuse used about fatigue after playing three games in a week when our opposition had played the same amount of games. Is it a reasonable concern that fatigue is already setting in? Bear in mind, we're only, let me just get that number, 23.91% into the season. Surely fatigue is only going to get worse I think it is a reasonable concern on the fact that we have got fatigued, but we shouldn't have fatigue. I know we've got a small squad. We don't rotate much unless it's forced, so like defenders have to rotate. But I just don't understand how we're fatigued already. I sh- don't think it should be an excuse by the manager or the press or any players because the professional football players and three games in a week, if they weren't fit, the sports scientists have got all that know-how behind them now. They wouldn't be allowing them to play. So I think it's a bit of a cop-out in a way because all the other teams in the league are playing exact amount of games as us. Yeah, I mean, for me, I don't think it's much of a concern, particularly when, you know, we've gone 10 games unbeaten. Fatigue influenced a few of those games, meant that we got draws rather than victories. But I think that the rate that we're going at at the moment, I think we can afford to, you know, lose or draw the odd game. But I think the style of our play is, it is high octane, isn't it? And you know, it's a lot of pressing and a combative approach to 
to, to win a game. And I think fatigue will play a factor, but I do think we've got a very decent squad. Like I know at the start of the season, I was a bit worried that we don't really have that squad depth. But I think as time has gone by and certain players playing in different positions, we have had a few injuries as well, haven't we, uh, that we can't really forget. You know, with Matt Clark, you know, who's a key player. Fatigue, I'm not really that concerned by it. I think it's part of the game these days. And the style that we play, if you're going to, um, you know, play that way, then I think one out of the three games, I suppose, to just accept that you're likely to get a draw or a loss. I guess for me, the, the reason why I think it's a reasonable concern, like I say, it's really early in the season. And I feel like surely come February, March, the players will, will have had the vast majority of the championship season behind them at that point. And is that going to be when we actually see fatigue really set in? It was something that was levelled at Bielsa's leads season after season after season. They played this aggressive, hostile type of football, which involved a lot of pressing from the front. I do think it's a little bit of an illusion how much we've been pressing from the front because at the games, I'm, not, I'm just not seeing the same type of football we played against Bournemouth at the start of the season or Luton, for example. Even against Stoke, I don't think we were doing that anything too aggressive, but Bielsa used to do this as well. And by February or March, Leeds would fall off a cliff and they'd just start dropping point after point after point after point. I don't think that will happen to Albion, let me just say. But it's something, a a little bit of a blinking warning light on the dashboard of the season so far. So I have another reasonable concern for you two to chomp your teeth into. Towards the end of the Stoke game, Alex Moe was forced to come off. And that's when we saw the introduction of the ghostly wraith that is Jason Malumbi. But obviously Moe was taken off with a suspected foot injury. Obviously now the news has emerged that the injury is nowhere near as serious as they first feared. And they really did fear that it was a bad one. He's since been announced that he'll be fit enough to play against Birmingham. Um, on Friday night. However, the alarm bells have to be ringing. If Alex Mowat gets injured, he seems to me to be the kind of Jenga piece in the whole Albion setup. You know, the one piece that if you pull it out, the whole tower tumbles. He, for me, feels like the Jenga piece at Albion. And if he goes down or gets suspended or is injured for any long period of time, how bad is that going to be? So the reasonable concern is... Could we adapt to life without Alex Mowat? A team isn't built around one player, and it never is. I think it'll impact our performance. I don't think we'll be as strong a team as we are with Mowat. But I'd like to think that a player coming in, whether it be Castro, Malumbi, or um, even playing somebody like Joy in the centre, or mixing it up a little bit and playing perhaps Phillips. Or If it's for a few, maybe a month, a couple of months, I think we could live with it. If it's a season-ending injury, then you know that really might impact on our promotion chances. But he's, he's a great player, Moat, you know, scoring screamers like he does. You know, it would be a miss, but whether it would be like promotion ending, I don't, I, I doubt it. I do agree that it's not based around one player, but this is not one player you're talking about, Alex. It's talking about Mowat. It's a total different thing. He's a quality player. And I think we would struggle because Malumbi and Livermore in the middle sound like a bit of a scrapyard in Birmingham. Malumbi and Livermore scrapyard. I just don't think, <laughs> I just don't think, I think that it would be championship midfield of two, that would be. I think you'd be talking playoff to upper end of the table midfield. And we struggle as it is with two midfielders at the moment. 
And I don't know if that's because we haven't adapted to Val's way of life, but I think Mowat will be one of the, not the only reason, but he's one of the reasons that we're where we are at the moment. And also, I think him in the dressing room and him on the training ground, him being there on the training ground is just brilliant for Val. And if he's not on the training ground and he's in the, the medical centre, I think that's going to be a big disruption as well. Can I just say, Moa is a proper northerner and he's, he looks like he's made of something different, you know. He looks like he's been on a diet of Sunday dinners, you right, know, every day. Strikes me as a player that would play with a broken leg. We'd play with just one leg if he could. He's... Oh, he's from Doncaster. Pirate yeah. Moa. Yeah, I think it would take a lot to keep him out. I think he enjoys playing so much. Well, I thought when you saw the injury and the way it was being reported and talked about by the press that it was going to be a really significant long-term injury. When it finally came out news that he was back for the next game, I was starting to know, obviously, you had the, the insulation of the international break. For me personally, I think some of the things that you guys said are both so true and so significant. Obviously, Moet's on-the-pitch influence is a tapestry isn't it there's lots going on with him you've got his actual ability and technical ability he's comes up with a goal he's eye for a pass but then you've also got his mini val on the pitch he's the one who knows the system he's the one who can pass out instructions he's the one who can be the midfield general that val needs him to be I do think he is the Jenga piece at the Albion. I think if you pull him out, I wonder whether the whole thing crumbles. And I think it goes from very quickly being a promotion-chasing squad leading the pack to scraping into the playoffs. I really do think Moat is that integral to what we're trying to achieve this season. Although I like Malumbi from the very, very small fleeting glimpses we've had of him, um, and even... Castro, as you mentioned, Alex, and some of the other names get thrown around. And I know the guys on the Baggies broadcast from the Express and Star talked about this as well, that there are options with Snodgrass, Matt Phillips, Kevin Castro, and a variety of Daro Shag when he comes back, or Semi Ajayi, and all of these kind of combinations of players you can put in central midfield. But for me, all of them seem like a massive step off from Moet. They, they, they don't even feel close to being able to do what he does. So I'm glad that he's not injured, but I feel like we've dodged a bullet a little bit. And I feel like it's a bullet that's just been reloaded. And it's just going to be scare after scare after scare anytime he gets crunched. But hopefully, as Alex said, he's made of tough bits and pieces and... <laughs> Pies, meat, meat and potato pies. Hopefully, yeah, he loves a bit of gravy. Yes, yeah, solid bits of meat. And it's, it, no, it's not meat, it's meat. All I know is that I want him in that team for the rest of the season as much as possible. Oh, he will right. be. He will be. Throw out a reasonable concern because I don't want to be the only one concerned here. Well, I've been into my research corner. Oh. Cue the music. One thing I found was that a supercomputer has predicted that we're going to finish top of the league. So there's no concerns, basically. <laughs> I also found that the big biggest concern for me would be losing Sam Johnston in the January transfer window, which I think is, you know, reasonable. It's, I think it's really it could realistically happen. You'd only have six months on his contract following the, the winter window. What do you guys think about Sam Johnston leaving? Will he leave too big a hole for us to fill? 
I think he will leave the biggest hole that a goalkeeper for the Albion since probably since Russell Holt. He saved the penalty against Stoke, and I just think he has been absolutely class this year, even with adapting to Fowles football. And I saw a stat that he's cleared quadruple anybody, any other goalkeeper in the championship, you know, coming off his line and clearing it. He's just literally the best player in our team. And we can't stand in his way. If we can get some money for him, great. We're going to lose him anyway at the end of the season. He ain't going to sign a new contract. People hoping that he's going to sign a new contract ain't going to happen, is it? But if we do lose him, can we recall Josh Griffiths? Because I know everyone's raving about him. Or is Alex Palmer going to step up to the plate? Or are we going to go back to, you know, that second goalkeeper? What's his name? I can't even remember his name. Button. 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 Sorry, Button, if you listen. Yeah, it's a big concern. I agree, Alex. I think for me, we do have a bit to be concerned about with Johnson. I think the way he's adapted to this sweeper-keeper role, as you've mentioned, Joe, the statistics all support it. But just again, the eyeball test, he seems to really have adapted well. I think his distribution has improved dramatically. I think some of the passes he plays out to the wings, his accuracy. Check out his assist against Andorra. I know we're not going to make too much of the international break, but his vision to get attacks going has been brilliant. I can't remember seeing a player improve as much as Sam Johnson has done in the last two years as any other player in the Albion. His first season here, he wasn't that good, in my opinion. Second season in, in the Premiership, he was an absolute revelation. And the third season, he's shown that he has like a higher ceiling than I think any of us had imagined. And I don't think that will go unnoticed by top clubs Ultimately, there will be teams sniffing around and Albion in January are going to take what they can get, to be fair, because I do think it would be crazy of him personally and professionally to sign a new contract. I think as much as he enjoys playing for the Albion, he has no real reason to it. The only reason that I would say there's less to be concerned about is obviously we've all heard these positive stories coming out about Josh Griffiths and the potential of him coming back is exciting. But then he's going to learn this role as a sweeper-keeper in a league that's probably, with the fullest respect to the current league he's playing in, much higher standard and much higher expectation playing for us than Lincoln, is it? Link. Lincoln. Lincoln. Lincoln City. The Imps. The Imps. That's it. Can I just ask you both, would you categorise Sam Johnston as world-class? No, I wouldn't. I, I think he's not world-class now, but like I've just mentioned in our chat, and people can't see that, our listeners... But yeah, he's only 28. And what is the prime for a goalkeeper? Probably about early 30s. Yeah, he's, he's approaching his prime, I'd say. You can see him adapting. So when he plays for Gareth Southgate, he's norm, a normal goalkeeper, no sweeper. But then he plays for Bow and he plays a total different thing. And I think that shows for a goalkeeper who can adapt from one to another. So I just think he will be probably England's number one. If he, if he moves to a premiership club, and Pickford keeps not playing very well because Pope's dropped down them. I think he, he could be battling for number one, and it seems like England players love him. When Chilwell and Cody and everyone were, cud- you know, like cuddling him for his assist, it, was, it seemed quite, you know, that he's a big character. I think for me, like, the, the world-class discussion, it's not 
an offence to Sam Johnson to say that he's not in that discussion for me because I think the calibre of goalkeepers when you're talking about world class like your Edisons, your Allisons, your Donna Rumors, and these really truly elite goalkeepers are they're just on another another level altogether. But to say that, do I think he's one of the best goalkeepers, the top five goalkeepers in the country presently? Yeah, I'd say probably you could you could easily argue that. I know not everyone will agree with that, and that's fine, but I think I could understand why some people would agree with it, do you know what I mean? But I don't think he's quite world-class, but he is very, 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 very good. Yeah, I think we'd miss him more than we'd miss Moat, I've got to admit. That's a really him. interesting thought. Welcome to Alex's Interesting Thought Corner. I think you're right, Alex. I think you'd have to get someone like Aston Villa did with Martinez because he's, I think he's world-class, Martinez, their goalkeeper. You'd have to pay at least 15 to 20 million to get someone on the level of him. Well, kind of combining those two questions we've just had then, who is the Jenga piece at Albion then, in your opinion? Who's the, is Sam Johnson the player we can't do without? Or is it Alex Mowat? Or is it Callum Robinson? Who is the one person that you simply cannot remove without the house of cards falling down for you guys? I think that's an interesting question. You said Jenga piece. I think the biggest loss will be Sam Johnston because I think we will lose more games without him because he saves so many good, you know, like his shot saving, you know, is brilliant. But I think the Jenga piece, like you said originally, is Mowat because he keeps them ticking and he breaks down play. So I think there's two different answers there. I think we'd lose more without Sam Johnston. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thought. The way that our team is designed, I don't think we rely too heavily on on any players. I would say our star players at the moment, Sam Johnston, Moat, Robinson, I think's making a name for himself, perhaps Bartley and Clark. They're kind of our, you know, if you if you if you if you're collecting a, a sticker magazine, you know, you'd probably see them as our goal, our shinies. Shinies. Uh, sound so sound is so old there. Sticker magazine. <laughs> when panini. you get your Paninis and your Merlins. Uh, it's oh, not that not. anymore. It's all those uh, adrenaline uh, cards now. Oh, but you know what? I do think like your man of the match shiny would be someone like that. Carl Bartley would be in there. Carl Bartley, who has won more aerial drills than anyone in the country. Is that right? I think it's in the EFL. I'm going to go sure, out on so. a limb and say... Kyle Bartley has won more aerial duels than anyone in the universe ever. And I'm going to go out on a limb. He's got the neatest beard than anybody in the universe. Yeah, totally agree with that, Joe. Looking at his interview, (laughs) (laughs) he's like immaculate, isn't he? His beard is like a sculpture. But I I, I think uh, Sam Johnston would be our shiny. I think he's our star player. Shiny, shiny Sam. So let's put to bed those reasonable concerns for just a moment. We're going to move on to have some conversations about what's been happening in the sensible world of soccer. One of the really prominent stories that everyone's talking about in football at the moment is the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund taking over Newcastle during the international break. Obviously, this takeover that's been happening for years and years and years and years finally went through. Mike Ashley got his money and Newcastle now are the richest club in the solar system, miles richer than anyone else. Their combined wealth of all the other premiership team owners is completely dwarfed 
by Newcastle's new owners. Obviously, it's not without controversy at the same time. This group includes, as I said, the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, and Saudi Arabia doesn't have a great track record of human rights uh, and various of the laws that exist within their countries targeting various minority groups. But that seems to have been... <laughs> in a large way overlooked by the Premier League and they've been allowed to take over. But now, all of a sudden, Newcastle are like this mega colossus of spending power. Obviously, Albion fans are looking for Guac and Lai to pack his bags and move on and to be taken over. But obviously, when you look around and you see what the potential is, no doubt it'd be great to be a mega power in world football with all of the money to burn and the kind of project that Newcastle will be now for me sounds exciting. Uh, what are they going to build there? Who are they going to attract? Who are the players they're going to buy? Who are they going to target? Every transfer window is going to be like uh, Christmas Day. How would you guys feel about being taken over and suddenly being thrust into that position? Would you be excited? Would you be kind of concerned as many people are? Where would you guys fit on that spectrum? Obviously, you'd be excited because then you, you start looking to the future. You start looking, we're going to take over everything. We're going to win everything. But our owner, whoever the owner is, we don't know who that is, but Gunchen Lai, he's worth quite a lot of money, isn't he? He's not worth nothing, is he? He's worth in the billions, let's say. So that's enough for a football team. You don't need like 400 billion. They're not going to be able to spend that much money. What I'd like is owners like Leicester's owners. They love the club. Whatever the Saudi Arabia, what is it, Public Investment Fund? I know this term's been used quite a lot, sports washing to make themselves look better, which happens all over the globe in different types of sports, basketball, everything. We're a wealthy team now, you know. When we're in the Premiership, we gather that money, spend it on decent players, invest in youth, I don't want to buy these Mbappes and people like that because in the end of the day, they're there for the money. They're not there for Newcastle or if Albion got that money. They wouldn't be there for Albion. I want players who want to play for the Albion. I don't want to burst your bubble here, but I think that most players move for money. Like, I don't think that, like, just because they've got a bit of, like, a British grit around them, that they're not just it's, mercenaries. It's, it's, it's different. It's different. Like, I was listening to Talk Sport today and they were talking about Haaland. I know it's being ruled out, but that he could be offered a million a week. Yeah, he wants a million a week, yeah. Going back to Saudi Arabia, I'd be excited to start, and the human rights thing is a different point, and everyone can look into that, but I think that's for the Premier League, and the officials, FIFA, everybody, UEFA running it, they shouldn't allow that, but I want owners who love the club. I think I'd go absolutely mental if, um, <laughs> like a lot of the Newcastle fans have, if it turned out that you know a Saudi Arabian country <laughs> had taken over my club. I think I'd be, you know, I'd be loving it just to go on a journey. I would much prefer rather than having a new owner coming in and spending a load of money on the club. I'd rather us get to that point on our own merit perhaps similar to the Man United's, Arsenal's, Tottenham's. I would much prefer us to attract stars off our own back, maybe similar to Leicester as well. But I know that they've had a lot of money pumped in. It's it's not kind of a knee-jerk, you know, somebody's come in and then just gone out and bought, you know, the best players. I think Newcastle will find it very difficult. I actually think they'll get relegated this season, just on the basis that a lot of the players that are currently playing for them they will think their time's coming to an end, so what's the point? Um, I know they'll try and impress for a few weeks, but I think that'll soon die out. And then I think a new manager will come in so that the team cohesion will be reduced. But I think they really struggle 
I really do. I, you know, I'd actually put money on it. But I don't think anyone should put money on it because I'm not, you know, I don't want to be held accountable. <laughs> another mystical prophecy there from Alexia. A bold prophecy, nonetheless, as well. I think for me, there's a really interesting interview with Mike Ashley that resurfaced in the last week or so when he was talking about investing in football teams. And he was saying now how, although, yeah, your likes of your guac and lies and stuff like that are extraordinarily wealthy by comparison to me and you, now the football has moved into an echelon where only the super duper rich can really invest in such a way where you can make an impact on the Premier League table. Exclude Leicester, because Leicester's a complicated one because they went bankrupt and there's weird things that happened with Leicester. And also that season was a bit of a freak show. Like, that's not the norm. Um, and that's borne out by Premier League history, essentially. The true tried and tested method of winning the Premier League is to throw hundreds and hundreds of billions of pounds at it. And Mike Ashley said in this interview that he could invest loads and loads and loads of money into Newcastle and take them from being a club in 13th position to 9th. And ultimately, it would take someone far wealthier than him to push them over that threshold. And I think that's where these super groups come into it. I think I'm with you, Alex, and I understand all of the human rights concerns. And if you could almost have that much money in a vacuum where there was no kind of sports washing or there wasn't any negative connotations about how that money was accumulated, if you could just have an owner, I think I'd be absolutely buzzing about it. And I think the reality of it is when Albion talk about selling the club, that's really what we're all hoping for, really, is that someone's going to come in who's suddenly going to get the checkbook out and start signing players. Now, it's not going to be Haaland's and your Mbappe's, but I think our expectation is that Albion will be buying £30 million plus players at some point in the near future. The reality of it is if some guy comes and he's a local businessman, he might have a great passion for the club, but his ability to invest in the club will probably be hampered and limited as well. So I think I can understand and sympathise with these Newcastle fans are just who are absolutely chomping at the bit to see what they do in January. A good example for an owner who invests in the football team is the owner of Brighton Hove Albion. He's Tony Bloom, worth $1.4 billion. He invests in the whole of entire Brighton Hove Albion. He invested in Dan Ashworth. Uh, he invested in the manager, Potter. He's making a cohesion around the... Potter. He's making a cohesion around the, the whole club. He's becoming... This thing, what people are looking at Brighton and saying, wow, they play good football. They're not spending loads and loads of money. And that's what I think football is about. And that's what I think Albion can achieve. I don't think we should be spending 30 million. I really don't think we should be because Mowat was free and he's worth 30 million to us now. Yeah. And I think that's where I understand what you're saying, but we're not going to win the Premier League. But that's what, so that's what I'm saying. So is that the bar we're looking to get across as Albion fans now forevermore? Is that Albion no, don't F- compete for the, the biggest competition in the country? No, no, we should be looking for Europe, uh, European football. We should be looking at the Cups first. Those are the first things we need so to be going that's for. That's fine. Why, what I'm saying to you is, with the best intentions in the world, with a new owner, Albion's aspirations are to not ever compete for the biggest well, competition in the country. But we're never gonna we're never gonna get an owner who's more richer than But that's why I'm saying that for me then what's the point? Well I do think money's not everything. I think you can you can be innovative and, and win stuff. 
you know, do it, bring a new style of football or, you know, invest in the right players rather than just throwing money at a team, developing a culture at a club. And I think that's what teams like Liverpool and, and Man City have yeah. kind of realised now, that it's not all about marquee signings. It's also about the, the infrastructure and bringing players like Phil Foden and I mean, all the youngsters that are coming through at Liverpool, like, Trent Alexander-Arnold and who else was there? There was that guy who... Uh, Harvey, Harvey Elliott. Yeah, Harvey Elliott. <laughs> that, that's very true and they do have the benefit. They bought for Phil Foden and like brilliant young talent. But Liverpool, four or five years ago, spent 70-odd million pounds on a centre-back and it's not uncommon for Man City to spend 70 million pounds on a player that sits on their bench and never appears to them. So do you know what I mean? They are operating still in a realm... That is just beyond normal billionaire owners. Do you know what I mean? But also, also I do, go on. sorry, Joe. I was just going to say I do think Newcastle are a club which who could snap Johnston up uh, in the, the winter transfer window. They've got a couple of goalkeepers, haven't they? They've got Darlo and uh, Debraska. 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 <laughs> Sounds like a detective, Debraska. Um, I think if they're going to do it the right way. Um, and not just go out and buy a bunch of marquee signings. I think Sam Johnson would be an excellent signing for Newcastle. He knows the Premier League. He's got experience in the league. He's young. He's talented. He's British. So there's no no culture clash there. I think he'd be an excellent signing if, like you guys have been suggesting, they don't just go out there and buy all of the best players in Europe. I think Sam Joss Johnson would be a really astute signing for them in January. And they could give us, like... 200 million for him in January. There'll be a drop in the ocean to them. Let's move on to some other news that's been circulating around the club. Carl Bartley was named in the championship team of the month. Well done to Carl Bartley and his Da Vinci-esque sculpted beard. He really is a towering monster at the back for us this season. And as much as the head of volley, ball, tennis, whatever, he does win an awful lot of those aerial drills. So well done to Kyle. Any thoughts? No? Well done. Obviously, international break has come and gone. I really don't want to speak about international breaks. Honestly, it depresses me. But just a quick review. Johnson, as we've already mentioned, got an assist against Andorra when he threw the ball like Peter Schmeichel-esque to Grealish. Grealish still had a lot to do, in fairness. But I was really impressed with Johnson. Again, he pulled off some saves. There was a, a chance for Andorra where it turned out to be offside, but it was one of those situations where the goalkeeper doesn't know it's offside and still has to react and save it. And it was a, a brilliant reaction save. So Johnson, really impressing. Let's talk about Callum Robinson. Obviously, loads of stories around Callum Robinson at the moment. He made wider sports news than the Albion when he revealed that he hadn't been vaccinated and stuff. And a lot of conversations been had around that. Since kind of coming out in the press and saying that he hasn't been vaccinated and all of the controversy that that dragged up and polarising opinions that came out about it, he has been absolutely on fire for Ireland. He's bagged himself five goals in two games. Did you guys see any of the goals? I did. They were absolutely brilliant. That one in the first game where he smashed it up into the top of the roof and and then he's no-look penalty against Qatar. Starting a trend with no-look penalties. I've just got a bit of a conspiracy theory. You know, has anybody seen CR7 and Cristiano Ronaldo in the same room? That's true. I do not know. But to score five goals in two games, even against poor opposition, 
takes some doing um, at an international level and hopefully you can bring a bit of that form to the Hawthorns against the Blues. Absolutely. In terms of your conspiracy theory, Alex, there's a certain amount of overlap in the way his goal scoring form has increased. So I don't know, there might be some merit to your theory. But absolutely true. Hopefully he can bring it back to the Hawthorns with him and smash a few in against Birmingham can City. Can I just say, can I just yeah. say, sorry, I loved how Valerian Ishmael called him the Irish legend. It's good true to enough, have the he's Irish an Irish legend. legend. <laughs> Along with the Banshee. Yeah. That's a cool nickname. That's better than CR7. Callum, the Banshee, the wailing Banshee Robinson. Brilliant. Yeah. Rob Earnshaw. Another legend, a Welsh legend, a dragon, um, another mythical beast. He's come out and said he's ready to be a manager. Robert Earnshaw, obviously a brilliant upfronter for us. His little, like, what do you call it? Like a somersault he used to do as a celebration, wasn't it? Yeah. That's like a cartwheel, but that's the wrong gymnastic move. Um, Robbie Earnshaw and his somersault. He, did, did, he was the one who did a gamble at the end, wasn't it? Is that Robbie Keane? Was it? Oh, that was Robbie Keane, yeah. No, he just did a somersault and then did this kind of, like, gesture with his arm like a Tada kind of thing. Famously scored a hat-trick every, in every league in the AFL yeah. and in the Premiership. Yeah. That's going to be my quiz question, but Joe's already in there nailing it. That's good. So Steve Maidley wrote a great article in The Athletic talking about the ambition of the WBA ladies team. Obviously, those guys play most Sundays. Last result, a bit of a disappointing 3-1 loss to Sutton Coldfield. But again, this article, it's a great read. I really do advise if you've got The Athletic, Go and look at it. If you've not, you know, find a way to get it or they've always got a free trial on or whatever's going on. Um, but a brilliant article really talking about the vision that's been laid out by the staff, by the coaches there, um, and real aspirations to climb the leagues and make an impact in women's the Women's Super League in the long run. Um, so that's really encouraging. Definitely go and read that. And obviously, although the result at the weekend was disappointing, there's been some really encouraging performances. And again, loads of um, people sharing the women's teams resort and so which is really encouraging as well and actually something really cool that was in that article that was really particularly interesting was that ken is apparently a super fan of the women's uh, team as well which is really cool so yeah get behind the team go support them make sure you you kind of look out for their results and we'll certainly be talking about them more and more as the season goes by right let's move on to our preview of the game against birmingham city now this podcast in all likelihood is probably coming out on Friday and by my calculations and calendar assertions, we are also playing Birmingham City on Friday. So there's a chance that some of you will be listening to this and the preview will be pertinent uh, and then some of you will be listening to this and the game will all have been and we might look like idiots or geniuses. I'm going to optimistically say the prophetic gifting that lies within each of us here. And I think we've all displayed that, not just today, but across the sands of time, we've definitively been able to predict things in the future for West Bromwich Albion. So we all know the nickname here. There's not going to be too much excitement about the nickname discussion. The Blues, they're currently 16th in the table, started off brilliantly and had that monster result against Luton where they absolutely spanked them but they've really trailed off in form recently no wins in the last five and i believe they haven't scored in the last four games no they've, wins in the last seven jamie so no wins in the last seven alex thank you for clarifying but 
goalless in the last four as well. So they're in a real dip of form. Lee Bowyer uh, working a bit of magic and charm at the start of the season, but it seems to have worn off a little bit. They've played 11, won three, drawn three, and lost five with a negative five goal difference. This game will also see a celebration of the life of Alan Miller. Obviously, Alan Miller lost his life uh, a few months ago now, and this is going to be the club's opportunity to honour the man, a fantastic goalkeeper. Um, the players will be wearing black armbands. There'll be some former players in attendance at the ground, and there'll also be a minute of applause for Alan Miller. What a legend, and I'm really glad that the club's doing that for him because he was taken far too young. But of course, this is a local derby. On a Friday night, you don't get too many local derbies where there's a bit of a, a pre-drinking feel to the game, but that certainly will be happening. Obviously, the last time we played them was in the pre-season, and I think that was the game where we all stood up and took note of how good Albion were potentially looking. Uh, and as we've already mentioned, a lot of the injury concerns that we had going into this match have kind of alleviated themselves. Uh, and Matt Clark, um, according to Ishmael's press conference, and Alex Moat also. So, Alex, firstly, is there any notable players that we need to be having our eye on as far as Birmingham City are concerned tomorrow evening? The first one that comes to my mind is uh, Troy Deeney. He bleeds blue, doesn't he? You know, he's a proper blue nose. We, we tried to sign him, apparently, in the, the summer, but he ended up at his uh, boyhood club. You know, he's, he's going to be a real threat and hopefully he doesn't score against us. One, one other player that like, caught my eye is this uh, Tahith Chong from Man United. I remember early on in the season, he was really setting championship alike like he looked like a real prospect mm. like he'd take the uh, league by storm but he, he must have petered off a little bit obviously blues have got a bit of a robust playing style you've got Djukovic and Troy Deeney up front this was a concern of mine playing against Cardiff but we seem to cope really well with the aerial threat this speaks to kind of Bartley and the other guys in defense really kind of coping with the kind of more physical matchups I think that the threat of teams who can play the ball on the ground and pass through us is much more concerning now and I don't think Blues have that capacity to do that I think when you look at games where they beat Luton, a lot of the goals were counter-attacks and they really aggressively got the ball forward. I'm not worried about Blues being as much of a threat. I think if we can play our game, I think if we go back to seeing Val Ball the way it's meant to be played, as in pressing from the front, really aggressively pursuing their defenders, getting the ball down, and I'd like to see Hugel start for that reason. Callum Robinson and Dean Garner or Grant, you can pick. But ultimately, if we get the ball down, we play our game, um, get it out to the wings, get those crossed into box, create enough chances, get enough shots on target, and I think I can see us winning quite comfortably. Your prediction? My prediction, I think we will win 2-0. I've got a... Because we're a positive podcast about Albion, I'm going to say that we draw 1-1 and George Friend, our enemy... Scores against us. Don't be low with that, Joe. No, we're, we're not very good on Fridays. <laughs> we don't like Fridays. Friday the 15th, that ominous yeah. day. Oh, it is. Well, I'm reading a stat right in front of me that says Albion have scored exactly three goals in four of the last seven meetings with Birmingham City. So I'm going to go for a 3 0. Dean Garner hat trick. You can't argue with the research corner it just provides us with data and Dean Garner 
being a hat-trick scorer. I think Alex has predicted that every week for 20 weeks. That's, it's my favourite result, Jamie. It's similar to Mourinho liking a 2-1 two, two, victory. My favourite result, you know, a 3-0, Dean Garner hat-trick. <laughs> When it comes, mate, when it comes in, the celebrations that we will have on this podcast will be extravagant. Right. There's probably more we could say about the Blues game, but because it's getting late, the hour is late. The candle burns low. And obviously, by the time people listen to this, um, there might not be too much that's proved right about the Blues game. So is there anything else left to say, boyos? Not at all. No, it's all been said and done. Okay then, gentlemen, we should say our goodbyes. So that all that remains for me to say is goodbye to you, Alex. Cheers. Goodbye to you, Joe. Goodbye. <laughs> and goodbye to you all that are listening now. We're done, dude.